Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. It's our weekly reporter roundtable, where we catch up on the State House news from last week and preview the week ahead. Let's get into it. Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown has more than $14 million in his campaign warrant chest. Meanwhile, his potential opponents are spending millions to win the Republican nomination. A new poll shows businessman Bernie Moreno with a slight edge after winning the Donald Trump endorsement. We've got a little over a month to go until the March primary, and here to help us understand whether all this money matters is Jesse Ballmer, state government reporter for the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Good morning, Jesse. Happy Monday. Cleveland.com politics reporter Andrew Tobias, welcome back. Good morning. And making her debut on the Reporter Roundtable is Ohio Capitol Journal reporter Megan Henry. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's scrap this discussion of campaign cash and talk about what we really want to, the Grammys. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Although Tracy Chapman's performance with Luke Combs was pretty cool. I hear Megan can give us a pretty solid analysis of Taylor Swift last night, too. <laughs> yes, she made history by winning the album of the year for the fourth time. The first oh. person to do so. Oh, wow. So, Andrew, Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown. <laughs> he raised $6.6 million in the last three months. He's unopposed in the March 19th primary. But this is going to be a very, very competitive race come November. Yeah, he's just kind of piling up money in his campaign bank account um, because uh, the Democrats control the Senate. Uh, I think it's 51-50, but it's by a single seat. And they, uh, the three most vulnerable senators are all in states that Trump won. It's Montana, West Virginia, and Ohio. And Ohio is like the easy one for Democrats, if that says anything. So Sherrod Brown, obviously very important for him to just get as much money as possible so that he has the ability to run ads. I think people kind of know who he is, but one of the things that they're going to have to do I guess one is distinguish him from Joe Biden, because we just expect that Joe Biden is going to be a net negative here in Ohio. And the second one is whoever makes it out of the Republican primary, uh, chances are that many voters will be very familiar with them. So I fully expect Democrats, if not Sherrod Brown himself, to just try to drop a bunch of negative ads to try to say who that guy is. So um, so it's not so much. Um, on the other hand, I do expect that because of the stakes that I mentioned, that Democrats nationally are just going to be pouring money into Ohio. So it's a little bit less like the pressure is off of, on him. But that's why we all care so much. It's just going to be a very, very competitive election in November. Yeah. And Brown has gone up on television with his first campaign ad. And the Den like you said, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee has also committed to investing more than $10 million here in Ohio, which is not what happened for the open seat between Tim Ryan and now Senator J.D. Vance. But uh, Jesse, so we still have three guys who want to take Senator Sherrod Brown on. And it looks like, at least in the polling, the Trump endorsement didn't do a ton yet. Well, I think I think the polling indicates that Moreno got a pretty decent boost from this Trump endorsement. I know as I was watching football and yep, that's the only thing I watch on regular television anymore. I saw the ad saying Bernie Moreno endorsed by Donald Trump. So certainly that's a message that he's trying to get out there. And it is a winning message in Ohio. Obviously, it helped J.D. Vance quite a bit two years ago. And Certainly, he needs that boost because his name recognition, especially outside of uh, the Cleveland area, is quite low. Um, he's about tied with Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who is better known by voters. But that can be a kind of double-edged sword. You know, they know some things that they like about him and some things that they dislike about him. And Megan, what I found fascinating about this latest poll was that 
40% of Republican primary voters said they remain undecided. Yes, that is very interesting. We'll have to see what happens in the coming month. But Attorney General, excuse me this morning, happy Monday, Attorney General Dave Yost announced he's backing Bernie Moreno. Uh, This is the first endorsement in the race from a statewide official. And it's kind of interesting because Yost and LaRose are part of the same statewide administration. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. But I think you see divisions among, you know, the statewide electorate or Republicans regularly. So, uh, I mean, if we go back to former Governor John Kasich had a lot of disagreements with the other Republicans who were elected statewide that year. So not shocking. I think this almost speaks more to the 2026 elections, which feel so far in the future, (laughs) but we're already talking about. Right. I was I was. uh, Yes. So anyway, but 2026, the governor's race is going to be open after Mike DeWine is done with his second term. And we're already seeing the seeds of of that race now. And Andrew, I want to talk about another important set of races statewide. It's the Ohio Supreme Court. So Republicans have a 4-3 advantage on the court and Republican candidates are well, well ahead of fundraising. Uh, There was one Democratic judge in particular, who's raised just $145. Do I have that right? I don't have the number in front of me. It might be 143 but what's $2 here or there among <laughs> friends, right? Yeah, that's not even uh, enough to cover the filing fee to run for office. Yeah, I heard from some people about that number last week. When I first saw that come in, I um, asked myself, is this a mistake? You know, And it was not. Um, so I don't have the number, again, for the Republicans offhand, but it was in the tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is more of what you expect to see. And like we're talking about money in general, because this all comes down to if you think about what do you know about the justices of the Ohio Supreme Court, chances are nothing. And uh, voters make the decision based on kind of like the information that's most likely to make their way to them, which would be in the case of Supreme Court races, the parties will distribute slate cards, they mail them out, there might be some TV ads and stuff like that. But it's all important, especially if you don't know who the candidates are. And in the case of the Democrats, the $143 or $145 is, um, I think I could raise $145 <laughs> if I were running for office. So I've sold more than that in Girl Scout cookies so far for my daughter. <laughs> well, yeah, you the girl, you cannot hustle the Girl Scout cookie uh, brigade <laughs> either. But I, I, I talked to the Democratic Party about this a little bit. And, um, you know, something that might look a little bit better for them is they have a state judicial fund. I wonder if there's going to be some kind of outside group that might come in and help. But ultimately, um, it would be hard to raise money as a a Democrat running for this office. We saw last year, um, Democrats were fairly well funded. And they I think the uh, average was like they lost by 14 points or something like that. So it just kind of speaks to the challenge that Democrats have here. And it's a chicken or an egg thing. It's, well, I can't raise money because um, nobody thinks I'm going to win, and I can't win because I don't have any money. And that, this is uh, a really stark example of that dynamic. And Jesse, the reason this is so important is because, or people say it's so important, is because the abortion amendment that we passed in November is largely going to be decided by judges. Probably a lot of these decisions about what's legal and what's not legal now will be determined by who sits on that Supreme Court. Correct. I mean, going back to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, they're really sending these choices about abortion access back to the states, whether that be state lawmakers or the courts. 
uh, Republican-controlled General Assembly has made quite clear that they're not interested in uh, expanding access to abortion. And so any sort of defense of what voters approved in November is going to come through the court system. We have a case in in Hamilton County right now that could work its way to the Supreme Court. So that's why these seats are important and why it's surprising why those numbers aren't a little bit higher for the Democrats, given the stakes in these races. And Andrew, I want to talk about the state house, specifically the state house of representatives. So the Ohio Republican Party made the unusual decision not to endorse members who voted for House Speaker Jason Stevens. And so Stevens himself is not getting the endorsement of the state party, right? Yeah, that is odd. Nominally, the Ohio House Speaker is maybe, you know, arguably the most powerful elected official in state government. Often people think of the governor, but it's really the House Speaker that kind of pulls the strings of like it's funded and stuff like that. Um, I guess, in a sense, his not getting endorsed was sort of a win in that the about a year ago, the um, the background with Stevens, as the listeners may know, is that he became House Speaker over a different Republican who won an internal Republican vote uh, by Democrats helped Stephen. I, I kind of fell apart in the sentence construction there, but Democrats helped Stephen yeah. beat the other guy. And there were a lot of hurt feelings. A year ago, the Ohio Republican Party actually voted to censure him and all of the Republicans who helped him become speaker. And so um, they could have endorsed the challengers in all of these cases. I don't believe that Stevens has one, but many of the ones who are remain who are running for re-election do. So the and party... some of those races are getting really ugly. Yes. And so the party did remain neutral. There was some debate of that. But yeah, the, the explanation is that uh, they uh, are people are unhappy about the fact that, you know, that Republicans turn to Democrats to beat someone else uh, to. Yeah. And, and that's continues to be, be an issue today for, for the Republican Party. And Megan, House Speaker Jason Stevens is also trying to outraise Senate President Matt Huffman. And that's because Huffman wants his job in 2025, right? Yes, yes. Uh, Jesse, have you been you've been following this, haven't you? Yeah, it's really it's a it's a dynamic that has really underscored a lot of the politics in the Ohio legislature really over the past year. It has decided to us at least a little bit extent of how much how many bills have passed, which Cleveland.com reported was close to like a record low over several decades. So really this kind of back and forth between Huffman and Stevens is going to be interesting to see how it plays out in these primaries, particularly the open races, and then, you know, ultimately into November, which could decide the, the outcome of the speaker's race in 2025. Yeah. And so I think if I remember correctly, House Speaker Jason Stevens has raised just a little bit more money than Senate President Matt Huffman. But we'll kind of have to see how that I mean, I think the primary is going to be really interesting to see how many of those uh, Republicans who went with Stevens. They're sort of nicknamed the Blue 22 because they worked with Democrats. That's the moniker that the opposition has given them. I'm going to be really curious to see how many of them like make it through their primaries. If they all make it, I think that says one thing. If like half of them don't make it, I think that says another. Yeah, we'll see. We expect just with the kind of campaign calendar that we're going to, again, this kind of all goes back to advertising, which is always kind of a depressing thing to talk about because nobody really likes to think about how advertising basically decides who wins and loses. But ultimately for races like this, often it does. And we'll 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 see soon, you know, how this money gets deployed. And um, if people are kind of following this at home, uh, who is getting attacked for what will kind of 
let you know kind of which team they're on and also the races where you see more attacks generally indicates where the race is closer so we'll definitely be watching this kind of as, as the weeks go on March election approaches. So Saturday marked one year since the derailment of the train in East Palestine, and it was marked by a number of events in town, including the fact that President Joe Biden says he's coming to visit the area for the first time. Has a date been announced yet for that visit? I don't think we have a specific date, but it is in response to the one-year anniversary. I I know there is frustration among people in East Palestine and just in Ohio generally that it has taken more than a year for Joe Biden to come and visit this location and kind of address some of some of the underlying problems. I think there's also frustration that the legislation in Congress has not moved anywhere, despite the fact that it has support from both J.D. Vance and Senator Sherrod Brown, kind of a bipartisan solution. So it has been one year, but in a lot of ways, there has not been much progress. Yeah, a number of residents say they're still angry that President Biden didn't declare the area um, a disaster area. It was a specific designation that would have brought more federal relief to the area. Now, I know he's made a number of proclamations about the area, but they, it didn't get that official, I think, like danger to public health designation. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the case. And we'll see kind of what happens going forward. I do think like the number of articles and the number of press conferences there <laughs> were last week definitely shows people are paying attention to oh, this yeah. issue. Um, but does that attention wane? It's always a concern when there is like a giant tragedy, whether there is going to be momentum to um, actually make a change. And in particular, when it comes to regulating trains, a lot of this is controlled by the federal government. And so the states are a bit hamstrung about how much they can do. It's interesting, too, that last year, Joe Biden didn't come to East Palestine, but Donald Trump did. And that is a very red part of Ohio. So curious if Joe Biden's visit would even make much of an impact when it comes to the presidential election. Yeah, that's such an interesting part of Ohio because it used to be bluer. I mean, it used to be sort of just south of Tim Ryan's district. It used to be sort of like blue collar Democrats. But they have become reliably Trump in the last couple of years. You don't see a lot of... uh, uh, Democrats from like Appalachia and like the Youngstown area anymore. Yeah, and I kind of wonder what would have happened had Joe Biden shown up right in the immediate aftermath of that kind of thing. I certainly don't know what the White House is thinking with their calculations with this kind of thing, but you have to imagine that people like might not be very happy to see him. And so I don't know why they didn't come. It's interesting, certainly, that he's coming now. It does call attention to the fact that this occurred, which, you know, is something that even before the anniversary came up, Republicans were kind of stoking you know the the flames of the whole thing so i know that you know senator jd vance uh for instance now that biden is coming has basically called it a political stunt um but yes he, he also did sponsor the train legislation the, the rail safety uh, legislation that you mentioned earlier um and yeah we'll just kind of see when the date gets set kind of how it goes over but yeah it's definitely something to watch that was cleveland.com reporter andrew tobias Coming up on our Reporter Roundtable, we're talking about whether Ohio will follow in Alabama's footsteps and begin using nitrogen gas to execute death row inmates. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News.
Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. It's our weekly reporter roundtable, where we get caught up on all the political news in Ohio. Still with us is Ohio Capital Journal reporter Megan Henry, Cleveland.com politics reporter Andrew Tobias, and Jesse Ballmer, state government reporter with the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Ohio hasn't executed a death row inmate in years, and the governor says it's because the state can't procure the drugs needed to carry out lethal injection. Then, Alabama just conducted the first known execution using nitrogen gas. Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio doesn't want Ohio to do the same. We as a legislature said that is cruel and inhuman to do to an animal. And yet we have folks that are going to suggest that we do this to people on death row. Ohio outlawed gas as a method for putting down household pets in 2022. But Republican Phil Plummer, who supports legalizing execution by nitrogen, said it's an unfair comparison. I get tired of these liberals saying, oh, this person suffered and twitched. Well, I mean, when you stab somebody 39 times and kill them, where's the compassion for that person? So, Andrew, can you tell us about the proposed law that Plummer and other Republicans want to pass? I actually don't know the details about it. Maybe I can, like, pass that off to somebody else. <laughs> I, have some, I have some thoughts about the politics of this, but I'm actually not familiar with the bill. Yeah, so essentially this uh, piece of legislation is introduced by two Republican lawmakers, Brian Stewart and Phil Plummer, has the backing of Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost. And the legislation would allow individuals to choose between either lethal injection or nitrogen gas as their death penalty method if they were on death row, if both of those were available. And as you mentioned, Ohio has not had access to the lethal injection drugs for quite some time. So this could effectively make nitrogen gas the death penalty method in Ohio if it were to pass and become law. And I believe there's a provision in the bill that would make it a crime to release the name of the company providing the gas, right? This is one of those questions. This is why the cocktail of drugs used for lethal injection is so hard to get a hold of is because companies are terrified of being seen as the pharmaceutical company that sold it. Yes, you're correct. And so this would kind of reduce the public scrutiny for the companies that provide nitrogen to the state for for executions if that if that became law. So, Andrew, I have a politics question related to this, which is that Ohio hasn't executed anyone since 2018, like we said. But Representative Brian Stewart questioned whether Governor Mike DeWine has tried hard enough to get the drugs. Yeah, that's been something that we've it's been very striking with him since he took office. And one of the first actions he did almost was to uh, basically put a moratorium on, on executions in Ohio. And if you ask him and we do regularly, um, do you support the death penalty, Governor Mike DeWine? He won't really answer the question. He'll talk about the logistical challenges of obtaining these drugs. He'll discuss that the method that Ohio previously used for lethal injection has been found at times to be um, unconstitutional, although that's kind of been resolved by now. So that issues that sort of um, explanation that's off the table. But it just certainly appears to us um, that 
uh, Governor DeWine kind of fits the category of the sort of conservative Republican who opposes abortion um, for on pro-life grounds and also opposes execution on similar grounds, although he has not taken that public stance. And so it's I honestly don't really know politically, is it is it good to support the death penalty now as a Republican? Certainly with Attorney General Dave Yost coming out in favor of this, he seems to be staking his position that yes, there there's a political benefit to this, especially as he considers running for governor in a few years. But um, this is one of those questions that really hasn't been resolved, you know, within the Republican Party about um, it's a moral question, also it's a political question about what voters think about it. And so this is a good example, I guess, to kind of see it play out in the wild a little bit. Yeah, Megan, there seems to be a real divide in the Republicans over in the state house on the death penalty. So you have Steve Huffman, a Republican, Christina Roganer, a very conservative Republican. They've come out in support of a bill that would actually end the death penalty here in Ohio. Yes, it does seem like Republicans are split on this when it comes down to the pro-life issue, like Andrew was mentioning. It seems like some Republicans are in the camp of, well, if we are pro-life, we need to protect all life, uh, whereas some Republicans like uh, Stewart and uh, Dave Yost uh, say that there's a difference between an unborn child and a child murderer, I believe was the quote from last week. Uh, An attack on what, what Andrew was saying about Governor DeWine Last week, he basically, when we were asked, when we asked him that question, he kind of deflected it, saying that it's just not, there's so much going on in Ohio right now that it's not his priority. Yeah, I think that Governor DeWine always kind of um, is very deliberate about what political issue he really wants to take on. And so in this case, you know, he's never really decided to get into it. And something else I wanted to just say is that. Um, my first job out of college was working at the Delaware Gazette in Delaware County. Uh, Dave Yost was the county prosecutor at the time there, and one of the first stories that I covered was a death penalty case that he, um, you know, was involved with helping try. And there's there another one before that where he brought like the first death penalty case in Delaware County for years. So this is um, some just having covered him for a long time. This is something that he does believe in, and you know, as a, the track record as being a former county prosecutor who helped try death penalty cases as part of that. So certainly don't want to suggest that. This is just political opportunism for him or something like that. All Sides is devoting tomorrow's 10 a.m. hour to a deeper discussion of the death penalty. So you can tune in tomorrow at 10 a.m. and you can hear from the proponents, the opponents, and we're going to dive into the context of what exactly happened in Alabama because there is a little bit of controversy about how that execution went down. I won't ask you guys to opine on that. I'm actually going to ask you about Intel. So there was a construction delay that was announced that the building of the $20 billion chip manufacturing plant here in Licking County now is not expected to be finished until late 2026. Yeah, I think this is something that was announced last week. Wall Street Journal, I think, broke the story on this. And in some ways, it's not surprising given that construction and just like getting the microchip industry off the um kind of off the ground in Ohio was going to take a little bit more time. But obviously, this is a major economic boost for the central Ohio area and really going to change so much about that eastern part of the county and going into Licking County. And so any delay, you know, is kind of delaying those economic benefits. Do you all have a feeling about whether this is a significant development or not in the sense, like to uh, explain what I mean by that? Um, I remember when um, the the ribbon the ribbon cutting had yet to take place. The groundbreaking had yet to take place, um, and Intel delayed it for a few months because they were concerned about the passage of the federal legislation that subsidizes this and other similar projects. And so, in some ways, this feels similar to where, in that case, they delayed it, and then they sort of ended up 
doing it. And it felt like kind of them trying to put pressure on Congress to allocate the money. So um, I'm just curious what we think about is this just a typical construction delays or something deeper to it? Because I don't really know yet. I kind of wondered that too. What I did find interesting was the positive spin that a lot of Ohio officials have tried to put on this. Like I've seen a lot of commentary that, oh, it'll give the school system more time to get ready. It'll get the community and housing and all these other like, you know, secondary businesses more time to build up and be ready for Intel. I'm like, I don't feel like they were rushing to the finish line in the initial timeline. But I, I found it very interesting, this take of, oh, this will be a good thing. You always sort of have to ask yourself why the Wall Street Journal chose to do this story, because perhaps um, it there was sort of a window of the time frame that Intel announced when they began this project. And so this is within the, the, win- the window, but it's sort of at the latter end of the window. So I don't know. I, I've been scratching my head about this. I've followed some of the Columbus Reddit stuff on this, <laughs> and it seems like people generally say construction projects take a long time i tried you know I, my friend's buddy built a elementary school and man that thing really went behind schedule so but yeah I, i'm really interested to see whether this is something that is um you know significant or not ultimately it home seems construction too- giant intel project <laughs> basically the same it seems too that they didn't really give a specific uh date they even kind of gave a couple of different years i saw 2026 i saw 2027 so i think they're just really kind of couching it to give themselves some some wiggle room but to what anna was saying it seems like a lot of the groundwork is being laid when it comes to colleges and universities uh really starting to ramp up courses and offer specific uh classes geared towards these professions so curious if if this pushback might interfere with some of that but time will tell And actually, tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll be talking with Wall Street Journal reporter Asa Fitch, who broke the story. So you can tune in at 10 for the death penalty. You can tune in at 11 for Intel. Got all the bases covered. Um, In a filing late Friday, because they always happen late on Friday, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost said all aspects of Ohio's ban on morphed abortions, which we know as the six-week ban or the heartbeat bill, He's saying they might not need to be tossed out in light of this new constitutional amendment. Jesse, what's his what's his argument here? Yeah, I think that's kind of the question, um, because obviously voters approved issue one in November, which would enshrine abortion access and other kind of reproductive rights into the state constitution. And the understanding is that new constitutional standard will make laws like this ban on most abortions after uh, cardiac activity is detected. Um, unconstitutional. And even Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost put out a legal analysis of this before the election and all but said or essentially said that this law would not be constitutional. And so this was a filing on Friday. Um, We'll see what comes of this. It's also possible that they want the judge to make this decision rather than the attorney general kind of like acceding to something. So we'll see what happens. Maybe a consideration for 2026. <laughs> I'm out. I'm talking about 2026. Everything goes back to 2026. Um, I, I do think this is one of those things that's hard for people to follow, truly, because um, the vote in November wasn't to legalize abortion or broadly per se. It was to create, you know, a constitutional framework that says this is how things need to be. And now there's a whole legal process of dealing with the laws that are on the books. In this case, as far as I know, I think this is the only restriction that's kind of like a live issue, the the heartbeat bill. Um, there's other challenges that could come. And basically the way that an existing law would have to go would be that would, ha- would have to be removed, would be that somebody would have to challenge it in court. And then it would be up to judges 
and you know state lawyers and private lawyers to make their arguments so this is definitely the you know the the most pressing example of that but this is a really good illustration of how this is going to work in practice which is going to be slow there's going to be friday afternoon filings in cincinnati court and then we're going to have to wait and see what happens next yeah, it is an interesting contrast because issue one on the abortion issue and then issue two on marijuana, you know, took effect on the same day and you had people able to start growing marijuana plants or, you know, use it, if not purchase it in Ohio on that same day. And on the abortion issue, it was like, well, same as yesterday, but we have <laughs> some legal cases that we're working on. And speaking of the Ohio Attorney General, a group trying to amend the Constitution to include things like same-day voter registration and ballot drop boxes is suing Dave Yost, saying he's not fairly reviewing the language of their proposed amendment. I mean, so, I mean, I guess we should talk about, for those who don't know, right, we'll start with the basics. When you want to put an amendment to the Constitution, you write out what you want, you send it to the Attorney General, and he decides whether that's fair, whether that's misleading, whether contextually it's too confusing, right? And you go back and forth with him sometimes a couple of times, right? It's not unusual to get rejected. Yeah, this is another like how the sausage gets made moment in state government. And I think a lot of people think like, I have this great idea, I'm going to put it before the voters, like, I just do that. But there is a multi step process here. And the first one is with the Attorney General, whether the summary is a fair and accurate description of the total amendment. Sometimes the amendments can be quite long. And so this is what you're presenting to voters that they might sign to get signature collections. Now, every signature collection that I've ever seen has been like, do you like gerrymandering? You know, like, but yeah. presumably someone is going to read this afterwards. So, and the the names of these groups are often Americans for America or something like that. Yeah. And it's this is the the proposal for truth in the American way. Um, so often, um, the title itself is very flowery, and it's something that typically the attorney general's office is not really bad at an eye at. But in this case, this is a couple of times now in this process where um, Attorney General Dave Yost has said that he's basically explicitly said, we haven't really looked at this in the past, but we think it's important that um, that this language be neutral. And so he's taken issue with the proposed name for this title. It's currently... Um, I think it's Ohio Voter Bill of Rights or yes. some variation on yeah. that. Yeah. And the, the previous version was the Secure and Fair Elections Amendment or something like that. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's unusual that at this step of the process, that this be the specific reason that's holding it up, which is why... We saw the sued. group sued. Yeah. yeah. And Yost did tweet afterwards, we've been sued over this decision. Good. And we'll kind of see how it goes, because like I think the abortion amendment in November was the Reproductive Rights Amendment. I think that was sort of the official title. So I do think you get a little bit traditionally latitude in, in the title of the amendment. But the, I don't know. The thing that I don't really get, though, is that the title of the amendment, um, the, the stuff that appears on the ballot that voters see is written by the Secretary of State. So really what the title of the amendment at this stage is, is it's the piece of paper that somebody at a library is going to put in front of you to, if, to ask you, do you want to sign this or not? And just as far as the process goes, when and if this gets through this sort of preliminary period, then the group would have to collect 411 or 412,000 signatures like that. So it is kind of, it's not that, I, I can't imagine that people look at the title on the clipboard, but... Maybe that's what Dave Yost is concerned about. So we'll see what the court thinks about this. Yeah. And there's always criticism of this particular steps in the process just because it is a politician making a judgment on something that could get on the ballot one day. Um, but it was interesting that the abortion rights amendment did go through on the first round. 
And since we're quasi talking about elections, this is the perfect time to wedge in my weekly reminder that the last day to register to vote for the primary is February 20th. Early in-person voting will start February 21st. So if you want to vote in the March primary, you need to be registered by February 20th. And even if you're not a Republican, because, you know, the Democratic primaries aren't so interesting, or at least in a lot of places, you might have like, you know, a school levy, something that might be important. Check your local ballot. Um, Coming up on the Reporter Roundtable, we're talking about why the governor isn't recommending seatbelts on school buses. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. It's our weekly reporter roundtable, where we get you caught up on all of Ohio's political news. Still with us is Cleveland.com politics reporter, Andrew Tobias, Jesse Balmert, a state government reporter from the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau, and kicking butt on her first time on the reporter roundtable is Ohio Capital Journal reporter, Megan Henry. So, Megan, Jesse. After a fatal bus crash at the start of the Ohio school year, the governor convened a school bus safety group to review whether the state needed to do more to keep kids safe on their way to school. The working group issued 17 recommendations, but seatbelts weren't one of them, Megan. Yes, that is correct. So Governor DeWine called this working group after um, elementary school student uh, Aiden Clark in um, uh, in Clark County, um, Aiden uh I think I messed up his last name. Uh, Oh, yes, it was Aiden Clark in Clark County. Uh, Anyway, he died in a school bus crash. I believe it was the first uh, day of school. It was really sad. Very sad. Very devastating. And so Governor DeWine called this uh, working group to order. It was 15 members. Um, Interesting to note that only one school bus driver was included in this working group. And they had, uh, I believe, six meetings throughout the course of uh, August to December where they brought in experts and uh, folks to talk about these recommendations that, again, are just recommendations. Nothing nothing that came out of this group is uh, is law or school districts have to uh, comply with. They're just simply recommendations. Some would be up to the school districts to enact and some would be up to the lawmakers to uh, put forth in legislation. And so rec- seatbelts uh, were not one of them. And uh, I think some folks thought that seatbelts would be a recommendation that would come out of this working group. But... They said, the working group said that after people talked to them, that uh, sometimes they might create more problems than than it's worth, not to mention the cost alone. Jesse, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, it's worth noting that, I mean, 
it's an interesting dichotomy because everyone says, you know, buckle up. That's certainly a message when you get into your regular car. And so generally people recommend safety belts. It's, you know, a requirement and so forth in certain circumstances. But on school buses, I think there's a lot of concern that if there is a crash, and particularly if you have younger kids, like how quickly can you get the safety belts off of everyone to get everyone out of the vehicle and so forth. So that was one concern that was raised. But certainly money is another one. Um, Fully installing safety belts in each school bus would cost something like $19,000, whereas all of these other safety uh, upgrades combined were something like $13,000. Things like adding flashers or LED lights or like cameras, etc., And so uh, cost was certainly a factor. So what they ultimately came down on was they're going to create a fund of money that schools could apply for and decide maybe they want to outfit their school buses with safety belts. That is now an option to them, but it would not be a requirement statewide. Yeah, the 17 recommendations included things like additional training for bus drivers, bus orientation for parents and students, performance reviews for drivers, and tougher fines for those who violate laws near school zones. Because I believe in the the Aiden Clark crash, uh, it the van had like crossed the center line. I think like I don't think they've completely decided the at fault for that crash yet. Like I think it's still being investigated. But preliminary, it seemed to be like it was the van's fault or the van that initiated it, and not the school bus. Yeah, I think. I think that has actually been the case in a lot of these um, scenarios. And so there was a desire among the school bus drivers to have like that kind of advanced training. So if something like that happens, they know how to react. And of course, all of that's going to require more money. That's something that DeWine is going to have to ask the legislature for. But I think like keeping kids on school buses safe might be an easy sell. And school buses, even without those safety features that the working group has recommended, uh, cost over uh, um, $100,000. No, they're not cheap. Yes. And so adding these additional safety features, uh, while they sound great on paper, will be very costly uh, to districts. So it just all comes back to, to money. I want to pivot to sports betting. So Governor Mike DeWine and NCAA President Charlie Baker announced support for changes to Ohio's sports betting rules. The changes would include the removal of what they call prop betting, which are bets placed on individual player achievements. And so DeWine, I find this interesting. DeWine actually came out against it, and he had a quote where he said, we've seen a marketplace develop where a number of bad actors have engaged in unacceptable behavior by making threats against student athletes in Ohio and across the country. And that's, I mean, that's that's awful, number one. So it's just taking away, like, how many rushing yards is Marvin Harrison going to get in a game? That's essentially what we're talking about not allowing in college betting. Yeah, I know this in particular came up at the University of Dayton. One of their coaches was complaining about, you know, really toxic behavior towards the student athletes there. Um, But I guess anyone who's ever gone on social media after, like, for example, an Ohio State lost to Michigan, just pulling things out of the uh, hat here, (laughs) uh, you can see how much vitriol and anger and hatred there can be towards, you know, 19-year-old athletes. And so you add money on top of that. And it's not surprising that this gets pretty heated and problematic. Now, is that are they going to be able to kind of pull the cat out of the bag on the prop bets? That's to be determined. Yeah, I'm an NBA fan, and you hear players occasionally. And this, you have to remember, like Jesse said, that in the case of collegiate sports, these are kids basically, um, but grown men who play basketball and get paid to do so. 
um, will often comment about how they hear from a fan saying like, hey, Anna, you didn't hit that three-pointer. You cost me $1,000, you know, and um, it's one of those things that as we kind of try to decide or to learn how gambling affects kind of like the, the quality of sports, which are supposed to be fun. Ultimately, it's not very fun to hear people yelling at you about, you know, about the sort of the money that you cost them and it starts getting into affecting kind of the integrity of the game, I think. So it's it's interesting to see them pursuing this. I also feel like that's how betting works. Like it is a risk for a reward. Like you, there is a chance that they don't make the three point shot. Like that's the whole point of the bet. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's worth noting this would, even if they got rid of the prop bets, you could still bet on like the outcome of the game, for example. Right, like, or the spread of the game or, right. It just wouldn't be like whether Kyle McCord throws an interception in the final moments of that Michigan game. Not that I'm still thinking about that. We'll get over it one day, Anna. (laughs) Maybe next year. Um, So in an unusual move, the leaders of Ohio's 14 universities are being summoned to the Ohio Senate to account for their budget requests, as well as detail their spending on diversity. Jesse, how unusual is this? And is, is the state seriously looking to take away funding? Yeah, it's kind of to be determined. Um, I think from the Senator Serena's perspective, who is the one who's kind of leading this charge, um, the universities get money from the state, um, in particular for um, in particular for these buildings, which is part of the capital budget. And so it makes sense for them to come in and kind of account for their costs. I think the um, kind of trepidation is coming in particular from accounting for like these diversity, equity, inclusion programs, which have been in the crosshairs of the political debate uh, for some time. So this is good reporting from Laura Hancock at Cleveland. I think it's worth noting, too, that Senator Serino is the sponsor of Senate Bill 83, which would uh, have a huge impact uh, on higher education in Ohio. And that bill is kind of uh, in, in limbo over in the House. It was voted uh, on in the Senate and passed and went over to the House. But now it's kind of in, in limbo, waiting to go to the House for. But uh, I'm curious how much of it with the diversity aspect of this uh, kind of plays into what Senator Serino is trying to do with his Senate bill. This is always kind of like, uh, you know, like one of the plays in the playbook for legislators. If they don't like something that some tax fund entity is doing, a good way to at least put a scare into them is to make them, you know, pull, bring them onto the carpet and, and ask them questions. About make it. them come sing for their supper. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, I want to ask about an Ohio Supreme Court decision that ruled ex-lawmaker Stephen Krauss, who is convicted of a felony, can run for public office again. I thought if you were convicted of a felony, you couldn't run. Yeah, I don't really understand the rationale that uh, from that direction. But in this case, the uh, the ruling that they made specifically, they um, the court narrowly interpreted. There's a law that says if you're convicted of particular crimes, then you can't hold a, a state public office. And it has to do with whether or not that person has I don't remember the, the terminology, but, you know, fiscal authority or something. So the idea is that if you're um convicted of, of embezzling money, say, that you shouldn't then be a county auditor whose job it is to um, approve payments to the county government. Fair. Um, in this case, uh, Steve Krause was, I don't know the particulars, it's been a number of years, but he was convicted of theft. He had some kind of dispute. He was an auctioneer, and there was a person whose house he allegedly entered and, and took some stuff. But the the allegation wasn't really a financial crime, and so the court didn't really weigh in on this issue about 
what you mentioned at the beginning of the question, but they just decided that this isn't one of those topics that that would you know that his his role in state government isn't directly related enough to fiscal management for this theft conviction to affect his eligibility. So that's what happened here. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting if other state lawmakers who have been convicted of felonies, uh, you know, kind of challenge those decisions if they want to go back to state government. It was a really interesting ruling because it, they didn't even touch on uh, what Mr. Krauss was saying, that he got this um, part of this like case sealed. They didn't even look at that. They were just saying, you know, as one of 99 members of the Ohio House, he doesn't have like enough authority over state property and, and so forth. So we'll see. We'll see what the voters decide, whether they, they want to put him back in office or not, too. Correct. I guess that's the ultimate decision, right? The voters of that district get to decide whether they think someone with a felony conviction should be in office. And I was reading in Jesse's story, which was a great story, by the way, that theft in office, though, would automatically disqualify a candidate. So even though that's not what uh, he did, he was it was a theft, but theft in office uh, would be. So I'm curious if that'll play at all uh, and affect the vote for people. And yesterday was the deadline for companies to apply for a lease to extract oil and gas from under Salt Fork State Park and other state park and wildlife areas. But under state law, we don't know who's filed to get those leases. Right, Jesse? Yeah, this was interesting. Uh, Mostly the deadline was Sunday and I was like, hey, can I get those leases or like those applications? They're like, no, those are confidential under state law. So it really goes back to 2011 when this law was initially passed and they said, you know, this would encourage bidders if these uh, details and the names of the companies that were bidding were kept secret. And, um, you know, I think opponents of fracking under state parks in general say that this process has already been pretty secret and not accessible to the public. And so this is just one more example of that. We will find out who bid once they pick a winner. But we won't know who lost or what I, they were offering. I think we actually will get all of the details oh, once okay. they select a winner. Um, but of course, that's after the fact and the public and media, for example, won't have an opportunity to look at these various bids until after it's kind of decided. So safe to say the opponents of fracking under state parks, is they're not happy about this. Yeah, correct. I mean, there's been a lot of concerns about about just the public comment on this issue from the beginning. And a lot of it is, you know, this is a 2011 law, but they passed other regulation in 2021 and 2022 in this like kind of chicken bill. And so (laughs) this whole this whole process has been kind of set up. Um, opponents would say to the benefit of the oil and gas industry that is trying to drill under these under these state lands or parks. Yeah, that was one of my favorite lame duck stories. Well, lame duck chickens. But it was about how many baby chicks you can sell at one time because you can't sell them individually. You like sell them in groups. And it was like an argument for 4-H and that like, you know, suburban 4-H kids should be able to buy them in smaller quantities to raise. It was a whole sweet thing. And then it became fracking under state parks, which I'm not really sure. I guess they're up both happen outdoors. You don't really raise baby chicks indoors. I'm not sure what the connection was. It's always the most random and innocuous bill that gets these things added. But, uh, and speaking of legislation, House Bill 68 is set to go into effect in April. Uh, That is the controversial legislation that would ban transgender girls from female sports teams and would restrict the kinds of medical care, like puberty blockers, hormones, surgery, that transgender minors could access. But the ACLU 
is suing, and I don't think that surprises anyone here at this table, but kind of what happens next? I guess we'll have to wait for them to file the lawsuit. Um, they announced that they will be suing, but there was no actual case that came with it. Um, you know, frankly, I think they might do something like that as a way to get attention for their cause, possibly raise money, but also kind of like have a response because people want to know what they're going to say about it. We've, you know, become very accustomed to the ACLU suing over all kinds of things. Um, they've had some success challenging these types of restrictions in other states. I certainly am not an expert on what factors might weigh into that. But uh, yeah, we're going to have to wait to see for the lawsuit to come. But they announced that they're going to be filing it before the law takes effect. I assume they'll be seeking an injunction, right, Megan, which is essentially like, let's put this law on hold while the court decides. Yes, I believe that would be a a safe bet. Uh, It's interesting to note that the 6th District Court of Appeals, uh, which has jurisdiction over Ohio, when Kentucky and Tennessee uh, filed against this, that basically the 6th District ruled that the law, the ban can still be in effect as this plays out in court. So I'm curious if that will be the case, if it gets to that point, if that will be the case as well in Ohio. But stay tuned. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But one thing we won't be waiting for right now is the state legislature. I want to quickly remind folks they're not back for another couple weeks, right? They have one session in February, right? And then nothing in March, right? Yeah, so they're actually back this week, oh, and okay. I think we're going to see some movement on the capital budget, um, which is a lot. It sounds like very <laughs> exciting to you, but it's basically like all it the money important. that we're going to dole out for different like properties and building and construction. Uh, there's some value to getting this moving before the primaries come out so people can say, hey, like I'm working on that local project for you. Yeah, so the capital budget, for those who don't know, it's actually super important to my... I, I like to make the case for it. It's like the Ohio Theater like had partial renovation covered by the capital budget, like parks and running paths and hospitals and airports and all kinds of things where you want, if you want to build something in your town, you can go to the state and say, please help us pay for part of it. And they have a couple billion dollars every other year to hand out. So uh, that probably won't get passed, though, until like May, June-ish. That's around the deadline, right? Yeah, it'll it'll take a minute. Yeah, but they're not they don't have any sessions scheduled in March and then a handful in the spring. Then we'll go into summer and the election and then lame duck. And you know what's so crazy to me is like hey, we have a year left to pass legislation, but there's not a lot of time left to pass legislation. Yeah, I think that period of time, and we call it lame duck, which is after the November election and before the end of the year when all of these bills kind of like die on the floor if they haven't passed, is going to be a wild one this year because of all the dynamics we have already discussed. And that was Jesse Ballmer from the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Andrew Tobias from Cleveland.com. Thank you. And thanks to Megan Henry, who made her debut from the Ohio Capital Journal. Thank you. And that'll do it for this hour of All Sides on 89.7 NPR News.